This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Because of the nature of this interview, we think it's important to have an extremism expert come on the pod and share his experiences with today's guest, Katie McHugh. It's easy to say that you've left a hate movement. It's much harder to do it and to try and make amends for the harm that you've caused. We urge caution to anyone who has dealings with a so-called former extremist, but senior investigative reporter and spokesperson for the Southern Poverty Law Center, Michael Edison Hayden, has personal experience working with Katie. He joins us now to discuss his experience and time with her. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to Did Nothing Wrong. We're really glad that you could be here and help us kind of put some perspective into this. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. And I would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Katie. Cool. She's great. So how familiar were you with Katie McHugh when she was a member of the far right? So like at the time when Katie was like a thing on the far right, uh, when she was a personality uh, that would have been getting attention, I was obviously not working for SPLC at that time. I started December 2018. And I was actually uh, working at ABC News at that time. And I was familiar with Katie largely because of things like, like at ABC News, for the breaking news desk, there were a slew of terror attacks uh, that were led by uh, Muslim extremists around 2015 and 2016. It was like a, really the height of ISIS's influence globally and, 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 and also the scaremongering around ISIS. Um, this, both things were happening. Both ISIS was legitimately scary and they were also being used as a propagandistic. So there's, right, there's right. two things there. Right. But yeah, I mean, ISIS was really legitimately scary. And, you know, what we would do at ABC, quite frankly, frankly, was not great, uh, in retrospect. Like we would, we would do things like we would just kind of like, gather um reactions to terror attacks and things like that that would be like you know it was a lot of the the type of reporting mainstream reporting that led to trump's rise and and um helped him maintain control over his base you know after his election this type of reporting this both sides crap and you know i i became familiar with katie because she was she was like always kind of would come up her twitter account would come up alongside other folks who are really pushing anti-muslim stuff and then she disappeared uh and i did not give it much thought after that uh until i saw her you know an article about her on buzzfeed and i realized that she had sort of left the movement and tried to distance herself from the movement and i reached out to her privately largely because i felt empathetic to her because of some of the things that the radical right people were saying not so much because i wanted to cultivate a source at any time then it's just more that i felt for her in a human way 
um, because I felt that she was really trying to leave and she was trying to do the right thing. And that is how I met her. So at what point did you start to consider the possibility of her being a source? Uh, Could you tell us maybe, is there a vetting process for something like that? How skeptical were you kind of take us through how that, how that ended up happening? Well, I think there's like, there's, there's two sides of this. There's like the, the, the first side of it is I will take information that is accurate from anyone, whether they've left the movement or not and frequently do. Um, so yeah, I mean, if somebody who is in the movement and horrible wants to share a movement, like material with me about somebody else who's in the movement and it's accurate and I can use it in my reporting in order to effectively push uh, the radical right to the margins, I'm going to do it, whether it comes from Jason Kessler or if it comes from somebody who's left the movement, it doesn't matter to me. So that's the first thing. But um, in Katie's case, it's a little different. And the difference is that I did not ask Katie for any material. I reached out to her, as I said, uh, because I felt uh, I felt for her. I mean, I felt like I, people were saying horrible things um, on the far right, and they are horrible people. And there's a vulnerability to Katie that I sensed uh, just in reading about her, and I hated seeing it. So I was just like, "Hey, um, you know, I hope I was like, hey, I don't remember exactly what I said, but something along those lines." And um, she herself started to tell me about certain things. And uh, at the time she was telling me about certain things, I did not realize how valuable some of the things that she was telling me, how how the things she was telling me actually uh, was. Like I didn't, and it didn't occur to me even at the moment that she was being a source, right? Because she had things to kind of get off her um, chest. Like she, she was on a mission, so to speak. She had things to say that like, I didn't even know whether she was she was saying was was accurate or not. Like I didn't know if she was crazy or you know what, right? Like you you don't know when somebody's telling you things. I get things people send me things all the time that turn out to be not true. So, you know, I all I can do is really listen. Katie can talk about if she wants to be open about some of the stuff that she, to which she's been a source, but like not everything that Katie has uh that everybody knows Katie's been a source on, she's been a source on things because she has uh she's just um uh, got a lot of material and she's also very serious about trying to stop these folks. And yeah, I mean, I learned over the course of talking to her that these things were not only true, but that she also had uh, a lot of source material to provide to back it up and um, has been, I think, arguably the 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 best source like of an individual person in the movement I can think of for a lot of people. I mean, she has really done a tremendous amount of good. She does, I, you know, in my opinion, she's done more good than she ever did bad. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it really speaks to her and her character that this is how she wanted to handle it when she left. And when she walked away from it, a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't do this. A lot of people find a way to find a way to monetize or find a way to like clout chase off of their associations. And it just doesn't strike us at all that she's ever actually done. She that. hasn't made a dime off of it. 
she has tried not to be covered by the media. Uh, the media has wanted to cover her. Right. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough positive things about how she's handled herself. Uh, there are other folks who have led, left the movement who have not tried to make a big imprint on things and have just tried to do good things. She's not the only person like that. We rely very much on the sincerity of people who feel a sense of remorse from participating right. in, in hate movements. I mean, it's like such a big part of what we do. It's the main thing that keeps me optimistic, actually, is seeing people make those kind of realizations. You never see it go the other way. The only time anybody goes the other way is to make money. That's right. the only way. You never see anybody leave because they think they're doing the right thing. People like Katie, who do what they do, do it largely because they want to be free of the the kind of uh, psychological prison of the 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 radical right puts folks like that in it's a horrible it's a horrible world and you, you can imagine how much strain is on some of these influencers every day when they try mm -hmm. to just like keep up with grifting and behaving like monsters do you think the vitriol that was directed at her was it as much that she's a woman and we know that they they hate women they do not think women should have agency agency they shouldn't even be allowed to leave the movement but was there a fear of the information she had or was this just these guys hate women and and how dare a woman leave their movement i think it's like it's multiple fronts you, you certainly, you know, by mentioning the misogyny, I mean, it's it, it, like misogyny is always first and foremost. Before we got on the air, we talk about Tucker Carlson for a little bit. And like, yeah, I mean, like it, it, it's like the biggest driver for that guy's career. Um, everything else, all the anti-immigrant stuff, all it flows from from his anger towards women. Yeah, I mean, that's number one. <laughs> I think there are different levels to that misogyny as well. There's like they don't have a lot of women in their movement who are willing to put themselves out there. Right. And she was willing to do that. And by taking that away, uh, you know, it's, it's inherently um, a negative for them. And, you know, it, it exposes that this is really a male dominated white thing. Right. And every time you take away somebody who provides some element of tokenism, I guess, or whatever, lack of a better word, it, it chips away and, and, it, and it exposes them. I think also the fact that, uh, you know, Katie was associated with a lot of people who are born under in, in tremendous privilege and she didn't have that privilege, you know? So I think that there's some resentment toward that too. They claim a lot of times to speak for the working class and, you know, she's surrounded by people like Stephen Miller, who uh, is completely uh, <laughs> rich and, and continues to, use the government to build off people. I mean, he, like, you know, I mean, like his, his family, I mean, the PPP loans that he got and things like that. I mean, this is not a guy with like, you know, who is like starving for cash. Julia Hahn is like a, was also at Breitbart at the same time and was a contemporary of Katie's. Her family is worth a fortune. And, you know, Steve Bannon, for all his kind of earthy 
qualities yeah you know his sort of salt of the earth whatever that he provides on war room i mean he's a multi-millionaire right and then oh, yeah. you have katie and she's like uh, from a much more humble background has learned to live with a lot less and then there is like you know she, it's all fine and good when she's supporting them but when she turns on them there is uh you know i think there's an element of class resentment as well so i mean there there are a number of factors there i also think that even though katie was uh heinous at times um online particularly with muslims i think that she held you know her there was something that she was not willing to be as like there's like a five percent that she couldn't go in terms of viciousness that some of these folks would like somebody right. like Stephen Miller, right? And um, that is also because she was a contemporary of theirs. That is also anger, frustration, right? Because because that exposes them of going too far. So there's all those all those things I think are part of it. And then yeah, that she had a lot of material that proved to be very unpleasant for them. I mean, some of the stuff like, you know, Stephen Miller's emails, it's not just that they're emails or anything like that. It's just that, like, I mean, it doesn't, like, prove um, an unknown thing. Like, we do knew that, we knew that, like, Stephen Miller was racist before the emails. It's more, they can't get away from the white nationalist stuff when it's in those emails and and when when Katie's there to kind of to back that up to kind of authenticate that this is real she was there she was yeah i mean i i think yeah i'm i'm trying to look for the words here because it's like it's a pretty significant thing it's like if stephen miller would just get by on being an anti-immigrant extremist and and everybody's saying that he's racist and stuff like that. It's it's the fact that he's like really deep into these texts and then he's had phone conversations with her. It puts it on a level that, that is upsetting to people, I think, I, right. you know, at, at, at its core. It shows that there's a kind of a great replacement lobby in this country, so to speak, like a, an, a white national lobby that exists within the Republican party. And I think that that's like a much deeper thing there. It's much easier for them to just say, Oh, it's like uh racist and they're calling us all racist. But when they have to encounter the fact that there's like really a, a shadow lobby of white nationalists, that's a much bigger thing. And right. it's much more upsetting. And I think it motivates more people to reject the Republican party and to reject them ultimately. So I think that that's, that's really the significance of the kind of material that she provided. So I think we're going to talk to Katie after this and get into a lot more detail here, but I did want to ask you one last thing before we let you go, because we don't know who's going to be listening to this, but it may reach the right person at some point, we hope. And do you, Mike, have any final thoughts that you might want to say to anyone who is considering leaving a hate movement? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I am 44 years old and I can tell you that every, uh, every minute that uh, passes, you get a lot closer to uh, not being here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that becomes more apparent as you get older. And 
the urgency of life, so to speak, uh, becomes more and more apparent. And, you know, I can't make anyone leave. That is something that is done by people that has to come from within. So if I say you should probably leave, I've, I've said that to people. I said it's like Tony Hoverter. To, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Hoverter. On Gab, he's like talking to me about Nine Inch Nails. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> Why are you doing it? Why are you in a like why why are you a white nationalist? Just like leave the movement and just listen to Nine Inch Nails like a normal person and we'll have a conversation. Right. right. But you know, he's still doing it, man. He's still going on those speeches. I can't you can't control. You can't like tell everyone anyone that they'll they're they're you'll be fine, you'll be normal, just be a normal person. You can't hit people on that level. They have something they gotta find with from within. But the only thing I can say is that the urgency of life is there in all of us. And we're going to leave this world sooner than you think, all of us. Mm-hmm. And it does not hurt to tell the truth before you go. That's the only thing I would say. It's not a religious thing, but it feels good to do, right? I mean, it's uh, something I've had to do in my life. Not everything I've done in my life is great, by the way. You know, it's not like I haven't made mistakes without going into details. We all make mistakes. And being a fascist, for lack of a better word, is a pretty big one. But, you know, you don't have to die a fascist. That is what I would say. That's a great way to put it. Just the idea that you can always walk away. You can always just move away from it. You can. I'll tell you, like, I think I, I think probably you have not lived on this planet if you've not lied or kept secrets from people or done something you're ashamed of. It's part of life. But there are a lot of us out there who are counting on the decency of people and the ability of people to recognize that they've done wrong. I know we live in a society where Trump has like created this never apologize, double down thing. And it's going to be very hard culturally for us to get rid of it because, I mean, you see liberals you know, in Hollywood or whatever, who do something wrong and they'll, they'll jump straight to that too. This never apologize thing. Very tempting. And with social media, it works with the algorithms and everything. But, you know, to me, telling the truth, being open, it's the best thing you can do. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, And I will say also, if people want to tell me things, you know, if they want to come to me as a source and not have anything published i'm already always ready to listen to it's like one person who doesn't do this stuff anymore is a victory for me so i will probably try to talk you into giving me your hard drive and text messages (laughs) and voicemails (laughs) but he's good at that i but Mm -hmm. if you do that's because i'm you know because i am who i am but if you don't i will still talk to you (laughs) (laughs) it's not a requirement as it were Uh, on that yes that's that's how i feel thank you mike this was exactly what we needed and uh we really appreciate it thank you mike we really appreciate you peace easy bye-bye have a good bye bye katie thank you so much for joining us welcome to did nothing wrong we've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time and we're glad to have you here thank you guys i'm a big fan so i want to reach out um, I've been listening to you for several months now, so this is exciting for me. As exciting as talking about the worst people on Earth can be. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, we saw your name on it, and we were kind of like, wait, what? That Katie McHugh? 
Okay, <laughs> that's cool. So let's break this down real quick for people as kind of a two-part question and answer. First question is, who were you? And the second question is, who are you now? That's a good question, Griff. I was far-right editor at Breitbart News, especially in the run-up to the 2016 election. Um, I was fired on June 4th, 2017, after posting anti-Muslim tweets. I was very anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant especially. And I was sort of recruited by the conservative movement to join the, the media side from a young age. And I was introduced to this world via Fox News at first and then the internet as I got a little older in my teenage years. Um, so it was not something that happened out of the blue, like in my mid-20s per se. It was a years-long process, familiarity with this um, this kind of bigotry, like a sense of it's comfortable and the rhetoric didn't raise any red flags. Basically, I'm in a household where we watch Fox News every day after the um, election of Obama, um, I, I noticed too, because I was 18 at the time, I was very anti-Obama, Republican, how the rhetoric became much more intense against the Democrats and against um, Obama himself as our first black president. Um, and we were able to just, you know, flatter ourselves in thinking racism wasn't a part of it by just calling him, you know, the, the first communist president, things like that. and. It was also too, I don't think people realize like how widespread extreme beliefs are in conservatism. We all believed that Obama was not born in the country, that he was born in, in Kenya. And we all believed that he had a Muslim right. background and might be like a, a like a secret practicing Muslim. Like all of the bananas things that people said about Obama during those years, like it, it was just unquestioned belief. It's pretty much what the base believes and still do. Um, when you look back on it, you're almost like you're disgusted by how widespread it was and how we were teaching like young people to believe this and to have this kind of like bigotry sown in them from a young age and then to go forward as an adult, replicate it and inflict it upon society. And Fox News is definitely a huge part of that radicalization machine. Definitely. Yeah. And then inherit in is the idea that being a Muslim is bad. And not just bad, it might be the worst possible thing, which I think plenty of people on the left right now would listen to and say, well, so what if he was a Muslim? But for your people you were around, was there a worse thing he could be? Well, people simultaneously would believe that he was atheist, which is also evil, or that he was Muslim and like a Manchurian candidate whose secret Muslimness is going to help bring down the U.S., so there's just this whole host of self-contradictory beliefs just to that were creating this sense of unreality around it. But that didn't lessen the bigotry and the hatred and like the vitriol behind mainstream conservatism. I know you've had a lot of time to sit with this and probably ponder how you ended up where you were and the path that got you there. Can you run us through essentially how it got to the point where all of this made perfect sense to you, where you didn't question these things. Yeah, my earliest kind of political memory going back was, I think, the 2004 election with John Kerry and the Swift Boat veterans. I just remember members of my family all of a sudden becoming extremely anti-Kerry and very, very pro-Bush. 
Um, and just the kind of apocalyptic rhetoric of how the Democrats must be defeated and destroyed. And however, like, because I was 14 at the time, 13, 14. So, you know, Fox News is a daily diet going on from that age. Wow. And then um, because I was sort of like an English major kind of person from a young age, a writer, um, it made sense for me to go into conservative media and a big, big part of this was a man named John Elliott, who was um, journalism's uh, programs director at um, IHS, the Institute for Humane Studies, which is part of George Mason University programs. He was the head journalism director. And when I was a sophomore in college, I was applying for many different internships and programs for the summer. And on the application, we did list um, five conservative intellectual influences well, one of mine was Joseph Sobran, who, um, if your audience isn't familiar, he's a rather obscure part of the far right, but he was a um, an editor for National Review in the 90s. And he was fired by William F. Buckley for anti-Semitism back then as well. And I was going to a church at the time regularly, and the family taking me there introduced me to his writings. Um, and because I considered myself like very religious, at the time they spoke to me as a young woman, like when I, when I was 18. And so I carried that with me for a long time. And whenever I put down that So Brown was an intellectual influence on me, John Elliott saw this application and he thought, oh, fellow traveler. Yeah. Because hmm. when you're reading a, someone, because So Brown wrote prolifically, I was very passionate about being anti-abortion. So and being a, a libertarian constitutionalist. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> you know, whenever you're a young person, you have a <laughs> lot of beliefs and, you know, you have a lot of energy. Oh, yes. But what John Elliott saw was he thought, oh, she's an anti-Semi. And that's why he picked me. And I, I would call it a form of grooming, you know, being taught to, to hate like that. And John Elliott placed me at the Daily Caller in 2011. That was my first internship under Tucker Carlson. So that was my whole world is what I'm trying to get at. Well, and I, and I did want to focus a little bit on this because I can relate because you mentioned Fox News and the role that it played in normalizing this, radicalizing you and people around you. And as someone, I grew up in Tennessee, been in Tennessee most of my life. And I don't think people in other parts of the country understand how... <laughs> how many places here are playing Fox News 24 hmm. 7? It was on at my grandparents' house every time I went over. It was on, you go get your car fixed, it's on. This has had a major effect on our country and its impact is lasting. And we probably shouldn't downplay that. And I wish more people who didn't live here could understand just that constant stream of propaganda and what it does. Yes. And it lowers your defenses too. By the time I'm working for Breitbart and writing deranged anti-immigrant articles, I'm completely used to this kind of the energy and the rhetoric on the right. So did you find that when you were growing up, were you kind of the one conservative kid in your school or did you have a lot of conservative friends? Um, they, I think some, it was a mixed bag, you know, was, I had a totally normal upbringing. I was like one of the more outspoken ones in high school. I wasn't like turning into like a Nick Fuentes, I'd say. I was just like 
really pro-liberty, anti-democrat, and you know, we want we need lower taxes and our freedom, that kind of thing. It didn't have the the viciousness and the, the quite the nastiness and the hatred that came later down the road. Right. So Mike talked a little bit about this. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what your your financial situation was growing up? Like, were you a rich kid? Were you? No, we were like lower middle class and then middle class for a while because my mom had student loans to pay off. And, you know, she worked her way up through her career so that we were pretty financially stable. We were never hungry, you know, for example. And it was pretty normal. Yeah, and I um, I went through when I was about 18, um, I became very religious, as I said, but unfortunately, my religion was not embrace everyone and help the poor and love people. It was, I hate gay people, and I'm anti-abortion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. That version. Yeah. Okay. Seems like there's kind of two competing visions for what, what Christianity means in this country, and you, you summed up both of them quite nicely there. It's like, do we believe in the liberal Jesus or the conservative Jesus. And it's a little wild how we've come to that. Yeah. And like the the gulf between them is so extreme. Like liberal Jesus says, feed your neighbors. And then conservative Jesus says, stone gay people, you know? (laughs) Oh yeah. We, we have that dichotomy. We have the church that has the, the billboard that says trans lives matter. And then we have the church that shows up at the school board meetings to yell at them about the trans content that's being taught in our schools. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, I kind of fl- like as I was going throughout college, I became less religious and more just far right. You know, any right. part of Christian charity I might have felt like dropped off, especially because I know this is the case for many young people who are on the right. Um, they want to pursue a media career. So that's why you have right-wing outlets like a campus reform and things like that. So you make a big name for yourself on campus, and then you're more likely to get noticed by the right-wing media machine that will help you advance your career. So that's the career path then, is to get yourself recognized on one of the various like sort of TPUSA or campus reform or one of these, and hope you get picked up as a writer. Yeah. And if you can... Write for outlets like I. What did I write for? It was like the Collegiate Network, a website called that, and okay. I would cover events on campus and then um, send like my copy that would be rewritten by that, and then sent to Matt Drudge um, to see if they could get traffic off of that, and I could add that to my little portfolio or I don't know, like my resume as a highlight. Right, right. And these days it might be TikToks. More TikToks and less writing, but it's the same essential plan and and career arc. It's can you can you make it hum? It seems like there's keywords, there's buzzwords, there's narratives that you need to know how to have the right spin on. And it's if you can demonstrate that ability, they can essentially do something with that. Right, and it's like I think it's much more dangerous now in the area of like libs of TikTok and all the bomb threats. Whenever I was covering like totally minor things on campus that later blew up into something that outraged conservatives, no one was getting bomb threats. You had angry alumni calling the school, but it was not like the violence that we see now is new for me. My perspective is admittedly limited in that regard. I can only speak to my own experience. And the way that 
public right. homophobia has been brought back to is very frightening, especially whenever you're, t- you know, you're targeting educators. I was very homophobic, you know, earlier in life. And what I see now frightens me. It's much worse. Let me ask you this, because we, we talked to Mike and he said you were not making a dime off of this. You're still not working in some sort of media career, but clearly just talking to you, you're still following all this stuff. And and you have a very different perspective and outlook and I think goal or hope when you look at this. But I guess I would ask, why why are you still following it now? It's because I feel responsible for my prior beliefs and my role in the media and creating this ecosystem. And I try to do it in a healthy way to keep tabs on all these things. And um, sometimes I'll see stories and I'll be like, I remember that person. I might be able to send her like a reporter, some firsthand evidence, like emails that this person sent about their real beliefs, put it in like into broad terms. It's just a sense of obligation. And also just because you leave a movement doesn't mean you drop out of like paying attention to the news <laughs> or, you know, watching what's happening in, in public. Right. Especially because you, you might be able to like have conversations with folks who don't follow this as closely in your regular life and say, yeah, like that, that really disturbed me too. Or you know, just talk about like police brutality and things like that. So maybe try to, you know, I don't know about change people's minds, but just make them more aware um, that these issues are very, very important. And it's not just shouting matches on cable TV, it's policy. You know, politics affects everything. So, you know, you have a duty to know what's going on in your country. I don't know how much you want to speak to certain things, because I, I don't think you're here to claim you're a subject matter expert. But if you if you wanted to, I, I, you, you talk about libs of TikTok and bomb threats and how extreme, how much more extreme some of this has gotten. Do you have a theory on why or how, why, why has it gotten so much worse? I don't know because I'm not a, like a radicalization expert. And because I've put a lot of distance between like myself and what I used to believe and it's almost like I have a, I can't pinpoint a reason why it's gotten this much more extreme, except for pointing to um, social media um, and, you know, the algorithms driving the profit. I, every time I'm on YouTube, unless I'm logged into my own account where I'm watching like a recap of Succession or Better Call Saul or something, um, I have to block a lot of things um, because otherwise I'll start seeing Ben Shapiro and Andrew Tate videos pop up and what's Prager <sighs> university things too. And also like just the degree of what's not become acceptable, like especially with someone as vile as Andrew Tate and woman hating too. And other streamers like that Sneeko person who's going up to kids and they're like, yeah, kill yep. the gays. Yeah, it's like, Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Um, it is is frightening. I know I'm using that word too much, but I don't know if I was being radicalized by reading like old National Review articles, okay, when I was 18, how much worse is it a problem now? (laughs) Well, and their audience is those kids. I mean, they've got 11, 12-year-old kids that are watching their content unsupervised and are 
you know, quoting their lines back at them. And they're looking at you like, what? I didn't say, I don't know how that happened. It's like, yeah, look in the mirror, pal. You're how that happened. Yeah. They're like, oh, they're just trying to shock people. And a guy like Andrew Tate went from relative obscurity to within less than a year, teachers in the UK are getting trained on how to attempt to de-radicalize or de-escalate or speak to these kids who are saying these incredibly hateful and misogynistic things. And they had to, to put sit the teachers down and tell them, okay, here's here's what you do about that because the problem was everywhere. Yeah. And it's here and it's everywhere else. And it calls to mind Andrew Anglin from the Daily Stormers comments back in 2017 about how they're writing it to an 11, 12-year-old level, that they're writing that publication so 11 and 12-year-olds could read the Daily Stormer and get it. And you find yourself thinking, wow, that's a winning formula for them. That's what they've done, is they've figured out how to pitch it to kids who are not old enough to think critically about any of what they're being presented. And as a result... No, and um, it's disturbing. This I'm going to go... I hope this isn't too tangential, but keeping it like really simple to reach the broadest audience as possible is something that you notice. When I was working at Daily Caller, we would analyze what people clicked on the most, um, especially in regards to images on the page. And the second most clicked on thing was like a woman's breasts. The number one most clicked on image was a swastika. And what year was this? This was 2011 and 2013 because I was an intern there in the summer. And I worked there for a year in 2013 at Daily Caller. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, people just can't get over the swastikas. And it's like, so who's our audience? Oh, my God. <laughs> what the holy <laughs> shit? Uh, <laughs> swastikas and boobs.com. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, this 2011, 2012. Yeah, with uh, Mitt Romney running. Well, that was even the early days when Daily Caller was trying to be a right-wing investigative outlet who did real journalism. And I know that didn't last very long because there wasn't any money in it, but (laughs) those were the good times. Those were the same times. Yeah, if those were the same times, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm laughing like I have a sense of disbelief now because I look back, I'm like, oh, that was crazy. It says something to how far in you were that when somebody told you that it didn't kind of immediately make you go like, holy shit. One of of my editors and he was laughing about it. (sighs) Probably not in the way we're laughing right now. I mean, that's uh, probably a different vibe altogether on that. Can't really say I'm surprised, but it's kind of like. Yeah. Because at the time. Tucker Carlson was was running the Daily Caller. He was the co-founder. Did you have a lot of personal interaction with him? I did. And it's, you know, disturbing to realize, like, he was one of the nicest people I ever met. And but harbors like insanely hateful, misogynistic views. And of course, like, because my own like misogyny was baked into the cake, you know, as it is for so many right wingers. It's like the fundamental motivation behind so much of the right. So someone could treat me very well as an employee and be really like outgoing and like seem to care about the employees and their their career trajectories. 
um, and still believe that other people are subhuman and like including women. Like we're just second class and like individual ones of us might be okay. But as a whole, women just like ultimately don't belong in public life. I think that's, you know, well, I don't think I know. That's what a lot of them truly believe. Wow. It does seem like the trad wife aesthetic or idea that has gained increasing prominence on the right is really just them saying it out loud. It's not really a new thing. It's just a new thing they're willing to talk about publicly. Am I wrong? No, you're totally right. It's a new thing that they are. It's not a new thing, but what's new is that they really are pushing it publicly. It goes a lot hand in hand with all the anti-science rhetoric. Like women are meant to have as many white babies as possible. Right. Abortion is evil, um, even though it's like, it's a medical procedure that is sometimes necessary to save people's lives and, you know, and let people live their lives. Um, and also the attacks on like hormonal birth control by saying it like it warps women's minds. It makes them crazy. They gain weight. And, I, you know, I don't like looking at them as much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> kind of giving the yeah. game away there with that last one. That, but the, the anti-birth control thing has been a um, pretty big theme on the right. I just think people are noticing it more, especially after the fall of Roe v. Wade. Right, because they, they said they'd never come for that. They said, oh, no, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we're trying to do. And now they're here for it. They love lying about that stuff. Oh, my God. Like, it is just with such a glee. Like, I used to feel this, too, on the far right. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're totally going to outlaw abortion. And people are going to go to jail. We lie because we like to know that the liberals knew that we were lying and couldn't do anything about it. It just made them angry. Yeah, and they think the hypocrisy is funny. Oh, yeah. Like you said, there's nothing you can do about it. And too bad. Ha ha. We're going to keep doing this shit. And that's something I really want to make sure gets emphasized here, because, you know, as somebody who grew up pretty liberal, somebody who has always been somewhat on the left my entire life, that's definitely how I reacted when I heard that when people were doing it. Kind of like, you know, and I know you don't mean that. You know, and I know that you're going to take this and do horrible things with it the minute you get a chance. And it's really nice to hear somebody who was at one point inside of that movement very deeply confirm that we weren't wrong or being paranoid or being unfair about any of this. It was like, no, that that was actually completely yes. the play. Please tell Griff he's not crazy. Yeah, no, you're not. You're not crazy. We, yeah, thank you, thank you. I feel so much less gaslit now. <laughs> I was gonna say we were definitely gaslighting you. I'm sorry. You're 100 percent right. And it still happens. It still happens where you see these people talk about, oh, we're not really going to do that. Brett Kavanaugh did it in his hearings for the confirmation when he said that Roe v. Wade is settled law. Amy Comey Barrett did the same thing, and everybody at the time knew it was that same feeling of like, we know you're lying. We absolutely know you're lying. The the Kavanaugh hearings were traumatizing for me, and I'm sure deeply traumatizing for a lot of people who have been victims of violence and assault. And mm-hmm. then when Amy Comey Barrett came around, I'm like, this is a religious nutcase. And I can't believe it's like enraging that she could just lie and say, yeah, I would never do anything to overturn Roe v. Wade at settled law. It's like, you're, you're a liar. You're a liar. Yeah. And yeah. millions of people are going to suffer now because of your lies and your power play. Yeah. 
There's a quote I keep coming back to from Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune. And this is from Children of Dune. When I am weaker than you, I ask you for freedom, because that is according to your principles. When I am stronger than you, I take away your freedom, because that is according to my principles. And that just keeps coming back so often that, wow, that's just the whole game, isn't it? You are asking me to be nice to you until it doesn't matter if I am anymore. And then when the shoe ends up on the other foot, oh boy. Yeah. And it's like looking at this atmosphere, I'm like, I don't think we would have elected Obama if he ran in this time. I think we've regressed as a country. Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with you. I don't think Obama could get elected now. Part of the reason I think that Jay and I at least were in favor of a Biden candidacy and then the presidency from a pretty early phase of it was because we figured it made the most sense to make it a binary choice. If it's going to be an old white guy that people are comfortable voting for, we can make it the old nice white guy who's got a bunch of government experience and seems to know how things work. Maybe he says some funny stuff sometimes, but yeah. Or the old white guy that's running things right now that's causing us to wake up every morning and wonder if the world's going to explode as a result of some stupid thing he said. Or a meme that he saw and thought was a good idea and needed to turn that into policy. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Trump has has taken over the right in a unfathomable way. And recently we saw Kevin McCarthy getting ousted by the MAGA wing of, of the Republican House. And yeah, I don't know that you could have seen any of this coming. But what what is your take? I know you, you said you had some interactions with Trump personally. Why do you think he's been so effective at this what what is the draw for republicans because he says out loud what we all believed like there were still social consequences to being a deranged racist who hates women and gay people you know there was still enough cover from like the business side of the gop who's like look we just want to cheat on our taxes we don't want to exterminate you know all the hispanic people in the country but that wing has taken like a backseat right now and they're totally fine with fascism. They're fine right. with it. At first, there was some like resistance to it because it was a question of, well, who's going to like get the power? Like, is it going to be Jeb Bush and his political appointees, or is it going to be Trump and his people? So it was more of a power struggle than an argument over principle. And also, Trump is just a crazy bully who gets under people's skin. He's really good at it. So he was going to. I, I as soon as he started to run, uh, he came down the escalator. I was like. That's our guy. He's going to win. He's been questioning like if Obama was born in the country or not for years. The base loves that because there's this sense of victimization of our views aren't heard. You know, it's the liberal media keeping us down. And look at Trump. Like he just cuts through all that. So as someone on the far right in that time, that's how I saw it. I know you wouldn't call yourself an expert on this per se, but based on your knowledge of, of Trump and the, the people around him and what they believe, you have to be thinking ahead to 2024. And in your opinion, if Trump wins, is that the last election we have in this country? Um, depends on how long he lives. I hate to be like morbid like that, but like the longer he's never going to give up voluntarily. Like, Never. 
Um, and I don't understand why the DOJ has been dragging its feet for years and they're trying to do everything by the book. It's like, no, this man is an act of danger. You know, we do have laws in place to prevent him from holding power again. And why don't we do that? You have people, you know, who are in, in jail for life because of three strikes laws because they stole some bread. Okay. And he's allowed to run around wreaking havoc and just ripping apart the fabric of the body politic. It, it does not say something positive about where we're at right now, that this is allowed to continue and he doesn't face consequences. So let's talk a little about your time at Breitbart. What was that like, being an editor over there? That was wild. Breitbart was apparently poaching people from Daily Caller. Um, I was one of the people that they poached. Someone else on the far right, who I was good friends with at the time, um, recommended me to Steve Bannon. And then Breitbart hired me pretty much right away. That was 10 months out of college. I was 23. And I worked for them until I was 26. At first, I was just working on the homepage, like setting up the blocks and editing the headlines. Then I started to write a lot more, which also made me much more radical, even more so than I already was. My focus was immigration. Because I also had a great replacement theory, like apocalyptic worldview about how there's going to be a tide of non-white people that take over the country and make us all vote for welfare or something. And that, you know, white people will be the minority. Oh, my God. You know, how, how awful. So I'm doing that and I'm writing more and more. And then um, 2015 is whenever things started really pick up with um, Trump running for president. I probably wouldn't have stayed at Breitbart. I would have, like drifted off after my contract ended. It was a three-year contract if Trump hadn't won or um, started to run because he really put a brick on the gas pedal for that site and um, for the far right, of course, in this country. And so I'm at Breitbart. I'm introduced to someone like Stephen Miller who, you know, it's basically understood. I took story direction from him. He was like the de facto political editor at Breitbart. And he's emailing me links from VDARE about programs like temporary protected status, how it lets too many brown people in the country, and how like he had a systemic view of how um, to begin dismantling the good parts of our immigration system and doing things that would like seriously hurt the country. Like the H H1B program has a lot of flaws, but that's what we got for high skilled workers. And he just he didn't want those people here because they're not white. And so this is what this person running this site is. And then you have someone like Steve Bannon, who then hired me to be his radio producer for Sirius XM and turned, um, used that radio show to become like a radicalization engine for our readership and for Trump's base by taking lots of callers, assigning reporters to write up the stories of people he interviewed. I had to call people who called into the show and try to get stories, ideas from like Meemaw in mm. like New Hampshire about the Clintons. And it was just this like self-perpetuating machine. And that's why I say like a place like Sirius XM, I don't know what they could have done to mitigate this, but they did provide legitimacy to someone talking about Camp of the Saints and the invasion of the, the brown people during a you know, an election that was very pivotal. So I think that should be a cause for some self-reflection in them. And I don't have a good solution. I'm just putting that out there that it gave, you know, a veneer of respectability to a lot of just as, you know, crazed, vile rhetoric. 
And the, the two things, like Breitbart, they, they hated Muslims and they hated Hispanic immigrants especially. That over before in 2014, it was about hating black people because of the Ferguson unrest after uh, Michael Brown was murdered by that cop in Ferguson. So it was like this ball of ever-changing bigotries, and the targets didn't really change. They just kind of shifted. So anyone who was against police brutality were like made out to be like traitors. Black people were made out to be like animals. Hispanic people, um, especially immigrants. Miller was always looking at local crime stories and sending them to me about violent crimes that were alleged to be been committed by someone with a Hispanic surname. One of the people, his name was Winton Hall, who was helping to run our Facebook page, which went from like no views to like a million likes, you know, because of Facebook's like, I think, skewing older audience. Um, he would email me stories about local crime stories. And it's like someone with a Hispanic surname would have been accused of committing a crime like drunk driving or a theft of a retail store. Um, and he would always put legal or illegal. And I would have to find out if this person accused of this crime was in the country illegally. And if so, write about it to portray it as like scary crime wave coming to, you know, your sleepy little white town. It was just, it was like their strummer. Well, in, in a country of over 300 million people, of course, there's going to be crime. But it's it's taking that one story and amplifying it to your massive audience and and it's just day in and day out and repetition, repetition, and it works. Yeah, and the way that we targeted Muslims too was like really vile. They were seen as like this shadowy force who, you know, we're writing stories about there's like there's been an increase of babies named Muhammad, and that's supposed to be front page news. Hmm. Yeah. And you take like a horrible crime like the Pulse nightclub shooting and capitalize on it and I apologize for this, but because it's hard to talk about, but a lot of people on the right thought it was very funny that a, a Muslim man, you know, shot up a gay nightclub because <sighs> they saw that as they said two of the lefts, they call them pets turning against each other. Wow. Yeah, because diversity is evil. That's why we have this. That's why we have this mass shooting because of diversity. This is the way that they all think. <sighs> Well, and, and this makes me think of something that has come up recently, because you're right, the targets really don't change. But we've seen some examples of some right wing led demonstrations and protests against trans people, drag shows, any sort of gender affirming care. And a new thing that has popped up with these traditional right wing activists are Muslims who are also there, also protesting these events. And they've suddenly become, in some cases, an ally because they too do not agree with this progressive ideology or, or take on what is and is not acceptable. My feeling on it is the right doesn't suddenly stop hating Muslims. That's, that's sort of latent, that's there but it's not the in vogue story. So, okay, we can make common cause with these people that we don't like because it, it fills a need and it gives us our numbers. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's a similar dynamic when someone like Senator Tim Scott is on the GOP debate stage saying that 
the great society was like comparable to slavery. And then he's propped up because he's a person of color repeating this message. And so I see a similar dynamic where you have um, people who are Muslims and they have a much more traditionalist, like right leaning belief about like, um, you know, people who are gay and their role in public life or being allowed to exist. And so the right like cynically props them up because then they, in their view, then they can't be accused of like bigotry because it's also Muslims. Right. They love those kind of people, don't they? They just absolutely love having those people on the payroll. Yeah. We're not homophobic. We employ Milo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we're not misogynists. Look at Katie McHugh. But at the same time... Oh, yeah. I was definitely used to prop up like this idea that the right's not misogynist. It's like, look, you have this chick saying all this crazy shit about, you know, that we agree with. We can't possibly hate women. You know, that's, that's how they view it. Wow. Yeah. So based on your experience with a guy like Steve Bannon, and you saw kind of the transformation of Breitbart and how that evolved around the Trump campaign. Do you get a sense of what he wants or is there anything that he wants or is he just so driven by this constant need to put out content that he he just can't stop? It's very flattering to like style yourself as a defender of Western civilization and just have that fuel like it's like an addiction or like, you know, just motivated by adrenaline to keep going and going all the money and the media attention is very captivating and it makes you feel powerful it really does you know whenever um, i was working at breitbart you know i'm thinking to myself wow how amazing is it that i'm like right out of college and i get to write national news stories that affect an election people love it it's intoxicating wow Someone like Bannon, too, they flatter themselves as like the saviors of civilization, but what they really want is to um, claw back power and reinforce existing hierarchies where they're on top, they have the money, and they're insulated from any consequences for their misbehaviors and possibly crimes, and just that they're the ones running the show. And that other people who are different than them take a place in public life or are forced out of public life because they don't belong and because they're seen as like lower on the totem pole. Wow. And also a lot of it is like this misogyny of we have to put women in their place. Women by nature are too emotional. All the things you hear about like why women can't be trusted to hold any kind of political power and that we, we vote to take men's money away from them for welfare programs, things like that. Just a, a lot of, a lot of misogyny and how we need to be, you know, barefoot and pregnant, hmm. having white babies. Huh. That only straight white men should have public lives, really, is the end goal. And then um, if you're a minority that supports this vision, you can get a seat at the table. But, you know, it's not for you, basically. This version of society. Or vision of society, I should say. One thing I will say is that right-wing media is extremely exploitative of young people who don't know like their labor rights. My first three months at Breitbart, I had to work seven days a week. I got three days off like that whole time, which I know violates some kind of overtime law. The fact that these jobs like a lot of times don't provide health insurance, you're salaried and you're working 80 hours a week sometimes, just <laughs> producing content for your racist masters. You know, it's just terrible. And then you're just becoming this hateful, warped person with no life outside the hate machine. 
And it's, you know, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's no way to live. So let's talk a little bit about your exit from this movement. Was there one event? Was it a gradual realization? It was not linear because there's no path outlined for it. And it took a long time. And it happened because people in my life cared enough about me to make tremendous sacrifices on my behalf to pull me out. I will say um, it kind of started when I got fired from Breitbart, which I regard as um, one of the best things that ever happened to me. (laughs) It was kind Mm -hmm. of interesting um, some of the reactions to, for example, the SPLC's expose on Stephen Miller from my time at Breitbart working with him because they were, right. what, what did they say? Oh, they're, they're saying I'm, I'm a disgruntled employee who's after Stephen Miller. And this was some like um, people who would identify as liberal. And I had to say, no, being fired from Breitbart was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it was a big reality check. And I didn't leave right away. But it pushed me farther into the right, and I got a much better look at like how evil this this movement is, and how people down to an individual in that movement are bad people, bad people that you do not want it in your life. Well, and Mike touched on this a little bit with the the hate, and I'm sure the the threats and various other attacks that you received as you started to leave and contemplated your future. And I'm sure that there's part of you that probably thinks you've deserved it. And it's probably been difficult to stop feeling that way. But is it just with you all the time? I mean, are you finding a way to move past some of those feelings. I know that that your fear and your concern is real, so I don't want to say it's all in your head, but have you started to look forward? Yeah, and that took much, much longer than I think people would be aware of. It's only very recently I've started to kind of heal from this, especially because a large part of the guilt that I feel, I know, means that I don't feel like I deserve help. Like, I don't deserve to seek therapy for some of my experiences. And that's not true because if I'm I'm not healed, it doesn't help anything. Okay, it doesn't make the world a better place if I'm right. just this broken person. And um, just trying to be humble and figure out how to atone for harm you've caused, that's a lifelong process. And that's okay. And it's like Mike said earlier, you know, you don't have to die a fascist. You can change. Definitely, definitely. A large part of it, too, is you see the inequities in American society, especially, and I want to be a healthy enough person to help fight them. That's really important to me. So you mentioned Mike. We've talked to Mike. We've had him on the show a few times. He's a great guy, and he's definitely one of the people who's been out there on the front lines dealing with this kind of extremism for years. What was it that made you guys start talking. It was um, after BuzzFeed published um, an article that was profiling me about my attempts to leave the far right. There were some parts of the coverage that were left out that I felt important. So I posted about them on social media at the time. 
And Mike reached out to me personally. He said, because, you know, he said, like, as a person, you could tell this other person was hurting and that this person, like, is genuine um, because the BuzzFeed article had positive and not so positive aspects to it in the process. And one of the things I was concerned about was I would still come off as insincere whenever I was very serious. So being able to talk with someone like Mike and a, like an organization with a lot of resources like the Southern Poverty Law Center was important. And it was Mike who let me know that um, there are groups out there that if you are sincere about leaving, they will help you, like Life After Hate. Um, I had a unfortunately negative experience with another group that was, you know, saying they want to de-radicalize people, but it wasn't the way that they functioned was not conducive to that process. So it's important for people who want to leave to know that there are legitimate outlets and organizations that will help you without exploiting you. Yeah, that's a really great point because it's hard, especially when you're coming from a circumstance like that, to know who you can trust because obviously your old friends just ain't it anymore. And it seems like there are a lot of people out there who have a bit of an agenda when it comes to helping people or trying to quote unquote help people out of these groups. So what made you go ahead and turn over the emails, the correspondence, everything that you had on the far right? I wanted people to get a fuller picture of how like a systemic problem it is, the rot, like in our political discourse and how there are like, you know, great replacement style lobbies working like as a, almost like a shadowy aspect of our government. And I found that unfortunately there's the media is not completely equipped to tackle the problem of extremism. Um, a lot of powerful people are in fact their sources. They don't want to burn them. There was one major right. outlet. I don't know if I can say the name, um, but they said that all the Miller emails had already been reported on and that was not true. So you're trying to figure out like, okay, who in this industry is like really sincere? Like, do they know how to tackle these kind of issues and understand they're systemic? And it's not like a quick gotcha because among the emails that Miller sent me, I had forgotten how many I had. It was almost a thousand. It was over 900. But other media outlets were only interested in the two I had where he directly linked to VDARE and not his overarching, you know, um, philosophy about politics, hierarchy, immigration, and um, our country. When you talk about Stephen Miller and over a thousand emails at a time when you're deeply enmeshed in the far right and these hateful and extremist talking points and you're bouncing ideas back and forth and it's the sort of thing that should be disqualifying. And yet Stephen Miller has gone very mainstream. And even after all of this was revealed and it was damning, but he's still, he's got his America first legal and he's going to be a big part of any future Trump administration. He's still out there and getting interviews and all these things. So I do remain curious how he was able to mainstream himself and and get past some of these what should be disqualifying beliefs and statements and you talk about a a great replacement lobby is there just enough money and enough people who even if they don't want to say it 
share those beliefs that he has that they are willing to look the other way. Yes. And one of the things you find too, if you spend enough time reporting on the far right is how influential, like a, a vile white nationalist publication like VDAR is. Um, and how many people, Peter Brimlow, who um, founded that site, know, and, you know, cause he, he's a wealthy person. Um, he's in these networks and he comes from, you know, the older school too, of like, National Review around the time that Joe Sobran was working for National Review. So you have people who, um, they're not on CNN, but they're still talking to everyone on the right. Um, and they might have like personal arguments or beefs with each other, but the overall structure is, you know, directed by them. VDARE will also, they pay $200 per article. So a lot of younger people write for them under pseudonyms. A lot of racist nerds who need cash will write for them. <laughs> and then all the other younger people read it too. It's insidious. Right. Right. Well, and you talk about the problems that you face dealing with the media. And the right loves to say, oh, the liberal media, oh, they're they're not going to criticize Biden or they're, they're always going to take this liberal approach. But you have the very clear right side, right wing media, the the influencer space. But it seems like from your experiences, is the media full of liberals who want to push these liberal ideas? Or is the media full of people who want to advance themselves and their careers? And at least at the big publications, it seems like it's not all that ideological. No, a lot of it is based on class as well and advancing your career and like being part of the like like the higher income networks and um, you know, older money networks, Ivy League, that kind of thing, the wealth. And a lot of it too is protecting their their sources. That's why they don't want to tackle some of these um, very difficult issues we see um, because it's like, well, now Stephen Miller won't talk to me anymore. So I won't get scoops. <laughs> and they're putting that ahead of democracy, which is very, very bad. And, you know, it takes a lot of education to become familiar with this like really dark world. And if you're, you know, everything's profit motive driven by clicks, it's hard to take a deep breath and, and study it. And it, unless you're a reactionary freak or a researcher, you've never heard of a book called Camp of the Saints and why Someone like Miller is pushing it to Steve Bannon, why Miller is pushing it to Julia Hahn and trying to push it on um, our Breitbart News Sirius XM radio show. So you have a, like a platform like Sirius XM broadcasting all these extreme ideas and it gives it like this cover of normalcy that, you know, there's a flotilla of people of color coming here to take over your country. That book is much more vile than that, but it makes me sick to talk about. People can look it up on their own. But the media... And I, it's just, that sounds too broad, but it's a little too unfamiliar with the nature of the far right to really combat it right now. And I hope to see that change. Let's talk a little bit about some of the stories that were ultimately published as a result of the information that you provided, if you're comfortable talking about this. Yeah, I have a small list because it's actually a lot. <laughs> and I also don't want to be thinking about this stuff all the time. So I try to write down like as I go. But I started working with Rosie Gray, who was at the Atlantic, and then later went to BuzzFeed and wrote the profile on me and my attempts to leave the far right. So there's 
a lot of these like Nazi social circles too, where I was working in DC, these people know each other on a, like a very close personal basis. So the first story was about, he was in the DHS, Ian M. Smith, um, and he was running with the Nazi circles in DC, which included real estate agents, other conservative media members. And then I worked with her on a story where um, Scott Greer, who was a writer for The Daily Caller, he, like many people on the far right, have like a pseudonym they've been using for years to write about. This is the most vile shit you can imagine in regards to, you know, what the far right believes with misogyny and, you know, discredited race science and eugenics and um, their hatred of black people, hatred of immigrants, what they call degeneracy, which is mean like women being in public <laughs> and gay people existing. Yeah. So that and then later on the BuzzFeed article, that was Scott Greer and Dave Brooks, who were both on the very far right. Then later on, I worked with um, another amazing writer at the Southern Poverty Law Center, Hannah Geis. Right. She did an amazing story for Splinter News on my career mentor, John Elliott, who's a real piece of work. I'll tell you that. He ran an email Hmm. list for years. He called it Morning Hate. So he would use his position of power to groom young people and becoming more and more far right. And that was his whole reason he got into education and mentoring young people. Which is, if you step back and think about it, like how vile that is, it's really something. And why? And why? Why? What's the end goal? What need is this filling? I just sit there and, and wonder, how did this make sense to you? Why did you think this was the right thing? Yeah, it's when you're on the far right, too, you're simultaneously like the defenders of Western civilization, you know, these noble knights in shining armor while also being like permanently victimized and, you know, afraid to be smeared as a racist. It's like, but that's what you believe. You're a racist. They see liberals as like this um, implacable enemy that's always trying to persecute them. And I think too, it's that they're what they call the fall of Western civilization is um, the changing of what they see are natural hierarchies of race and gender and, and class to an extent. Um, and they seek to restore that balance where they're the ones in charge. Like that's the end game for someone like Elliot, someone like Bannon. They want power and they're offended by the fact that some inequities are being challenged publicly. Conservatives are still angry about the civil rights movement, yeah. you know, because they, they see like government intervention to alleviate inequities in society is like, you know, just the most evil thing imaginable. They don't see inequity as evil or a problem. They see attempts to remedy it as the issue. Well, and that that does raise a, a question for me. And you talk about the civil rights movement being a problem. What year are these people aiming for? If they could go back in time, they, they have this nostalgia for 1950s white suburbia as as some sort of ideal to aspire to. But for others, it's, well, we don't want women to vote. So let's go back to before women could vote. And for others, it's the Middle Ages or it's pre-Reformation. There's all these benchmarks where they're like, let's go back to that. Is there agreed upon time that if they had the time machine, they'd be traveling to? Or is it is it just different depending on your, your flavor of right-wing beliefs? A lot of them would go back to 1939. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh boy! <laughs> uh. They'd be like, "Oh yeah, dial me right in. Well, I'm there." 
Yeah, maybe they could change that history. When you see with um, the Miller emails, he wants to go back to the early 1920s when Calvin Coolidge was president and using eugenics to exclude people from the country on basis of their ethnic background and race because smaller brain pan or something, (laughs) you know, whenever you could carry around a pair of calipers in public and that was seen as acceptable. Oh, that phrenology stuff. It's making a comeback. Let's talk about where you're at now, politically. Let's talk about, like, where do you self-identify these days? Do you feel like you fit into any sort of group or, you know, faction? Or what What, what are you thinking these days about things? The specific labels and things like that, I, I kind of get lost in that minutia. It's very online anyway. You know, I support things like universal health care. Climate change is a massive concern for me. Full reproductive rights, and also um, just the like system of enforced poverty in this country that's just gotten worse over my lifetime. And um, just providing young people with hope. You see, so many people saying like, "Well, I'll never be able to buy a house," and now a lot of people are like, "I will never not have roommates. I'll never have my own apartment." It's just this like steadily declining sense of like future economic prosperity right there's a lot more like scams now like everyone is trying to scam like elderly people out of medic like the amount of fraud that we tolerate in our society i've noticed has become increased (laughs) since i was younger right it just gets worse every year and i don't like that it creates a lot of low trust and it it pits people against each other so we can't even have a functional congress that would extend Medicare benefits for dental benefits for people over 65. We can't even agree that, you know, you deserve to have teeth as you get older. We can't even get Congress to do something about spam calls because there's a lobby for that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they donate to Republicans Uh and a lot of them are cops. So some of you younger listeners might not believe this, but there was a time when phones were actually sort of useful. And when it was ringing, it wasn't, somebody trying to reach you about your car warranty. I uh-huh. mean, really, sometimes yeah. it would be somebody you actually wanted to talk to. It used to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I can, like, never answer my phone anymore, <laughs> which sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild how we've come to that point where we live in this very low-trust society these days, it feels like. And if I'm with you on the whole scams thing, I heard about another work-from-home scam that somebody got hit with the other day. And it seems like that's been the path for the last while is figuring out how to cheat people rather than make any kind of an honest effort. Yeah. And I've become a very big housing and transportation nerd when it comes to that kind of policy to combat climate change. Housing is everything. For example, like the amount of women who could leave abusive situations, they're restricted by that ability now because of the massive increase in costs and the corresponding lack of an increase in wages. Yeah. Yeah, it's not enough anymore. Increasingly, people just can't afford even to move out with roommates, especially if you're in a situation where you've been in an abusive relationship for years. You may not necessarily have a whole lot of stuff in your own name. It's bad right now. Yeah, and housing, of course, affects climate. You know, whenever you have like a city like L.A., you have 10 people on the lease because you cannot afford to live on your own. They all have a car right? because, you know, you have to get to work. It's, it's like LA. that 
how does that help, you know, <laughs> meet our climate goals? No. I mean, we've built these cities to the point where it only makes sense if you have cheap, plentiful water and everybody drives. I mean, that's Los Angeles. Yeah. If you take either one of those two things away, it becomes a lot less livable. Yeah. Another concern for me is like the vitriol I've, I see directed at in poor people and the shaming. The um, homeless people are unhoused. I see people use both terms um, has become really alarming for me, especially because I see that on the rights, like the violent rhetoric towards homeless people as we see massive increases in homelessness is not good. No. So what gives you hope? A lot of things. It's hard if you're, you know, if you're a disinformation researcher to keep a a positive view of things because they're very bad right now. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there are so many good people out there who, you know, especially as we go through more climate upheaval, we're going to need to look out for each other. And just knowing that, you know, this is a huge country. There are millions of wonderful people out there. We can look out for each other. People's changing views on, you know, sometimes they change for worse and sometimes they change for better. Uh, That's a little bit too broad. I'm a little tired. (laughs) (laughs) I see things like people, like during the pandemic, one of the things, you know, it's like we can get rid of so much child poverty in this country. We just have to do it. And it's hard whenever people are working longer hours now, not making as much. The cost of everything has risen. You don't really have time to focus like a lot of energy in politics. You know, you're raising your kids and everything. And it's hard. But people do pay attention still. And a lot of what we're dealing with, like people don't want this. People don't want Medicaid estate buybacks where if you go on Medicaid as an older person, they take your house, you know, which is a law from the Clinton era that can happen. People don't want children going without braces. People don't want their grandmas to have to pay $7,000 for a hearing aid at the end of their lives. We want the best for each other. It's just overriding these narrow interests that keep us all unnecessarily impoverished is an uphill battle. But it's, you know, it's worth fighting. And it's worth preserving what we already have. You know, the the 1960s overhaul of our immigration system. We should be opening up more room for refugees. We should be pushing back against someone, the people in the Trump administration who want to cut refugee admissions to almost nothing from the poorest and most desperate people there. And we should be absolutely fighting back against like the evil policy of child separation at the border. And I think what gives me hope too is that the more people become aware of this through reporting like at the Southern Poverty Law Center, they can say, well, I didn't know about this. This is unacceptable. This is not the kind of country we want to be. Right. So I think we just need to really advocate for equitable policies and get the word out about what some of these bad actors believe. And normal Mm. people look at that and say, holy shit, (laughs) we're not going to take this. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is really unpopular beliefs that they are propagating and they want us to lose hope and believe that they are winning. But like you said, a lot of cases, people are just, too busy and have too much going on to actually fight this. But most people agree that that what they're selling is not what they want for their country, for their kids. And I mean, we definitely want to advance a cause and agenda that gets us 
to where most of the country already wants to be. And, and that's, that's something that we're working towards. We believe you're working towards. And Mm -hmm. for anyone out there who sees that, hears that and shares those beliefs from your experience, if you had to point people in a specific direction, whether it's getting out of a hate movement or pushing a positive change for the future, where would you suggest people go? I would contact life after hate. One thing, if you're thinking of leaving a movement like this, I think it's very important to preserve all of your communications that you've had with other members of this movement and reach out to responsible reporters like at the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Hate Watch blog to consider your safety too. You're going to want to do basic things like changing your phone number, having a safe place to go. And that's more complicated, obviously, than if you're leaving an abusive situation because you have to acknowledge your culpability in creating this kind of harm. I can only speak to my experience. If you do work with an organization like Life After Hate, they can help, you know, they have counseling, um, they have de-radicalization experts. Those are the people who I think are qualified to do that kind of work. But there is a path out. I think the right, what they always want to convince you that there's no path out. The amount of like vile messages and things that were said about me, just like they will tell you the most important things to make you feel defeated. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've been told to harm myself in some way. I think I've had my address published like multiple times <laughs> and my phone number too by people who are angry at me for, for leaving or for something criticizing something that was going on in the far right. Like this, uh, that Laura Loomer character mm-hmm. trying to get my cell phone number to tweet it out. You know, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to have that happen most likely um, depending on, I don't know how public you are, but I've also reached out to anti-fascists and they're, really accepting people and they want you to leave too yeah so if they're willing to extend you grace you do owe it to yourself and to the country and your community and your family friends to leave a movement like this and be a better person well thank you katie we appreciate you sitting down and taking the time to talk to us i know this wasn't easy and you've had a lot of soul searching to do and we're really grateful that you decided to talk to us about all of this stuff. You've got a very unique perspective on how all of this works. And I'm really honored and glad that you were willing to share that with us. No, thank you guys. It's This is part of me holding myself accountable and healing. So I'm really humbled and grateful that you guys take all this time to speak with me and to produce an episode. Like that means a lot. So thank you. You were great. And I think... It's going to do a lot of good. And sometimes we do an episode and it feels like, okay, this this is important to say now and to put out there. But I think we would both hope that someone might listen to it the day it comes out or someone may listen to it in a year or three years or five years. And if they're thinking about getting out, if they're thinking about doing the right thing for themselves, for their families, for the future that they, they really do have a hard look at themselves and consider how things could be different because it won't be easy, but they could be. And maybe it's worth it. Maybe. Yeah. And um, I'm just, you know, I was floored by the generosity and sacrifices people 
you know, didn't have to make to help me leave. And the patience, you know, they had, because it's not overnight. And there's a lot of, like, practical considerations to take into account, too. And it's just, you know, really humbling, you know, to have people reach out and help you like that. Yeah, I was in a very dark, dark place whenever I started to leave. And um, it's gotten better, but it, it was not linear. Um, and it took a long time. But I, I know that other people's paths will be, I don't want to say easier, but there are, we at least are recognizing this growing problem. And, you know, to provide people with an out saying, you know, this isn't, you don't have to be this way your whole life. Right. You can give it up and do it in the right way too. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.